Good morning. I am not Randy Boltinghouse. Um, I know some of you I've already learned between services are mildly disappointed. Uh, my name is Todd Daly. I am a professor of theology and ethics at Urbana Seminary here in town, and I'll be filling in a couple of weeks while Randy is away on his annual summer study leave. Uh, we'll, we're going to look at the Beatitudes this morning, and my thought was uh, when I preach again next month to continue with some of the Beatitudes, but frankly, we're just going to see how this morning goes before uh, we, we think about August. Um, either way, you have plenty of time to recover um, from this. So, uh, a, a quick prayer before we begin. Father, let us hear from you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, imagine taking a job at a company where all your coworkers are lazy, fault-finding, untrustworthy, backstabbing, chronic complainers. They become adept at pushing off all their responsibilities onto others. You always seem to find them lingering in the break room, first ones out of the office at the end of the day, last ones in every morning, have a tendency to call in sick, always telling their sob story, happy to take credit for somebody else's work, and quick to blame others when things go south. And then imagine you come in one day only to find that management has given them a promotion. I know some of you are probably thinking, I work at that company. No one would want to be at a place like that. No one would purposely run a business by deliberately inviting, inviting, mind you, not interviewing, but inviting the underqualified, the undisciplined, the lethargic, the inexperienced, the needy. You know, the kind of people who suck the air right out of the room as soon as they walk in. I mean, wouldn't it be better, right, to have a group of hardworking employees who are responsible self-starters? Right? They're the ones who need little supervision. They're the team players. They understand the notion of self-sacrifice and make those around them better. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that be preferable? And yet, this is what the Beatitudes are about, the, the former case, the former company believe it or not. That's, that may come as quite a stretch, but just hear me out and we will draw a connection at some point. It may not exactly seem that way. Uh, the Beatitudes introduce this massive ethical discourse that is famously known as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In this sermon, we find exhortations to be salt and to be light, to love our enemies, the Lord's Prayer is in there, the Golden Rule, references to the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, building houses on rock and sand, an eye for an eye, and so on. Without question, the single most brilliant ethical discourse in the history of humanity. But at the same time, no sermon has been misunderstood as much as this Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of that has to do with missing its introduction, missing the Beatitudes. 
The history of the church has a long and complicated relationship with this sermon. Church fathers like Augustine saw this sermon as a template for all Christians to follow. But over time, the sermon was interpreted as only applying to the spiritually elite. This was not for the everyday Christian. And more recently, Christians have tended to one of two extremes in dealing with this sermon. Either it's a list of rules that requires unflinching and radical obedience, or the sermon is a list of deliberately impossible ethical ideals that are meant to drive us to repentance and God's grace. The former interpretation is usually grasped by a lot of evangelicals. The latter was put forward by Martin Luther. Once again, much of this disagreement about the ethical demands of this sermon flows from how we understand these beatitudes. And if we miss this part, the rest of the sermon will usually become a wreck. The beatitudes set the stage for what follows. And here is its basic message. The coming kingdom is good news for spiritual losers. The coming kingdom is good news for spiritual losers. And as Matthew describes this sermon and as he sets it in this book, Jesus has just come out of his 40-day wilderness temptation in chapter 3, and in chapter 4, he's picked up a few disciples and has started his public ministry up north in Galilee. And he's made a big splash, teaching, preaching, and healing. And in the last several verses of chapter 4, he describes the arriving kingdom in expansive and hyperbolic terms. Right? Jesus healed every disease and every infirmity. His, his fame was sped, spreading throughout all Syria, the whole region. They brought to him all the sick, and he healed them. Word is getting out, the crowds are growing, they're flocking from the four corners of the earth. If Jesus' ministry were in the suburbs, people would be coming from as far away as Effingham and Wisconsin. Maybe even Indiana. I have nothing against Indianans. So it's, I'm, so this is the setting for the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. And we're just going to look at the first three verses. This is on page 809 in, in the, the Bibles here. So 5.1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus sees the large crowds that have accumulated, climbs up one of the hills of surrounding Galilee, and sits down, which was a common position for a teacher to take in this culture. And his disciples pick up on this visual cue, and they go seek out where Jesus is. What about the crowd? Uh, well, they're there too, but we don't, or they don't rather, seem to play a very significant role 
in Matthew's gospel. At least until the very end of this sermon in chapter 7, where the crowd is astonished at Jesus' teaching because it has a kind of transcendent authority. So while there is a double audience here of disciples and the crowd, Jesus focuses in on the disciples, on those whom he has just called in the previous chapter. And he takes out his canvas and he sets it on his easel, takes up his palette and his brush and paints a scene of the coming kingdom of God and those who are invited to it. In this sermon, Jesus is painting a portrait of the disciple who belongs to the kingdom of God. And as we will see, it is a countercultural picture. There are, there are three aspects we're going to look at just in verse 3 this morning. The, the consequences of those who have been called, the condition of those who have been called to the kingdom, and the cause of this blessing. We just knocked out two of the first three verses of this sermon. The third one's going to take a little bit longer, but um, bear with me. The, the first point, and we're, we're going to follow this in the order in which Jesus explicates it. He talks about the consequence first. The coming kingdom brings divine favor. And here we are immediately faced with a bit of a difficulty because there is no English word that, ac that accurately captures what is going on with the Greek word here, which is makarios. Uh, we get the word blessing or blessed from a transliteration of the Latin word for, uh, well, that means beatitude. The Latin for beatitude is uh, beatus, which means blessing, uh, blissful, happy, fortunate, or flourishing. And most English translations honestly settle on this word blessed or blessed, even though it falls a bit short of what is going on here. Some have even suggested that a better translation would be congratulations. Another commentator says, if you're in Australia and someone says, good on you, mate, that that is what is going on here with Jesus. Most translations, as I just said, settled on the word blessed, even though there is uh, another Greek word that actually does mean blessed and, and would have fit in this context. But that word is not used. There's this different term. Um, in addition, some have noted, and I'm inclined to agree, that blessed sounds just a little bit too churchy. I'm not going to go after New Testament translators. I mean, they're, they're really good. But in this context, there might be a better word. There's also the problem with attaching blessed to a thinly veiled religious gloss on the word happy. After all, we live in a country that is founded on the right to pursue happiness. It's practically written in our cultural DNA. We tend to define happiness as a lack of any inner turmoil. It's also connected with material prosperity and freedom. The, uh, the ancient Greek poets Pindar and Homer, uh, the guy who wrote the Odyssey, 
they used a form of this Greek word to describe someone who is free from daily cares and worries, or someone who is prosperous. It was often used to describe how the gods uh, felt about their lives. It often was used to describe the Greek gods, who neither toiled nor suffered nor were afflicted by the goings-on of human beings below. In contemporary terms, we tend to associate happiness with cruising down a wide-open highway in a convertible with a full tank of gas and Pharrell Williams playing on the radio. <laughs> and my apologies if that stupid song is now stuck in your head the rest of the sermon. Happiness is something that's highly subjective, and it's also a comparative term. Uh, it's not always about having enough or being enough, but being better off than somebody else. Is it any wonder that social media is making us less happy? We associate happiness with those who have achieved a particular status in our society or culture. Think of New England quarterback Tom Brady. He certainly, this guy is blessed or happy. Multiple Super Bowl rings, supermodel wife, super full bank account. He even has super hair. <laughs> happiness, happiness is elusive. I'm not jealous. <laughs> yes. Um, um, I will never be a spokesperson for hair club for men, that's for sure. Um, but this happiness is elusive, right? It always is just beyond our grasp. It's just always around the corner, just around the bend. And so in order to avoid reading that kind of understanding into the word blessed, it will be helpful to look at this particular Greek word, makarios, uh, as how it functioned in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament. I, this is a rare, uh, a rare time when we're actually going to do a, a couple of mini word studies in a sermon, which is generally not recommended. Um, bless you, sister. Thank you. I, I will take all the encouragement I can get. Um, so in, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, written somewhere between 300 and 200 BC, you will get an idea of perhaps how a Greek word in the New Testament might have been perceived much earlier. And the Psalms open up with precisely this word. The very first word in the Psalms is the same word we find in Matthew. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This sentiment is also repeated throughout the psalm. Psalm 119.1, the longest in the Bible. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. It's also in the wisdom literature, which would be uh, the book of Proverbs. Uh, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, Proverbs 3. And then in Proverbs 8, which is wisdom personified, wisdom is speaking. She says, blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Occasionally, these blessings will look to the future, 
And if they do, they are usually pronounced on those who are in dire straits. Isaiah 30, 18, blessed are all those who wait for him. And there's a, there's a beatitude formula that extends all the way back to the Old Testament here. Blessed followed by a particular behavior or activity or a mindset. So in the Old Testament, being blessed is not about feeling good. Being blessed is about being good. We have to keep this in mind when we're looking at Jesus' beatitude here, although he, uh, he seizes upon his freedom to do something different. He does something different by addressing, in particular, those who are poor in spirit. And it invites this question, how in the world can the poor in spirit, or those who mourn, or the meek, or the hungry, or the thirsty, be called happy, or blessed, or fortunate? It would seem here that the better term for makarios would be favored. Favored. I mean, I'm not alone. I didn't come up with this. There's other scholars who have discovered this ahead of me. But I think this is a better rendering. Because favored avoids the psychological problems with happy or fortunate. Right? Those are words that we use to describe like winning the lottery or coming across an item that is unexpectedly on sale. Right? <laughs> favored, however, is a relational term. We are more likely to use favored when we credit some good event in our lives to our Father in heaven. I mean, it's one thing to say how fortunate uh, your, you know, it is that your favorite flavor of custard was available at Culver's, but it's another to say that you've been favored because of that. Right? Whether or not God has ordained that brownie batter overload happens to be available next Tuesday just for your benefit is an interesting theological question, and one we won't be taking up this morning. But in saying that you're favored, you're acknowledging God's sense of joy over God's care and provision in your life. Jesus' announcement of the kingdom is a pronouncement of divine favor. Favored are you, says Jesus to the disciples, who have just uh, just been called and who have just left a lucrative family business to come follow an itinerant preacher. Note how different that statement is. Favored are you is from the thought that you should be happy because you're poor in spirit. Or you should strive to be poor in spirit. That's an ethical gloss on, on Jesus' sermon here. Favored cannot be reduced to a feeling, even though it should bring religious joy in its wake. This is a divine pronouncement, a statement of the way things really are in the world in light of God's coming kingdom. Our happiness is not rooted in our circumstances, but in God's divine favor. You are favored, says Jesus. Some of you probably need to hear that this morning. Secondly, 
This divine favor rests on those who are spiritually needy. This is the condition of the blessed. If the consequence of the coming kingdom is divine favor, the condition of those called to it could be best described as the spiritually needy, the poor in spirit. Now, it, it is well known that in Luke's account of this beatitude, which is much more brief, uh, Jesus simply says, blessed are the poor. And so many have concluded that Matthew's account is deliberately emphasizing the spiritual, uh, the spiritual dimension of material poverty. And I, I think some of that is it's true to a degree, but we don't want to overstate things. Because in the Old Testament, material and uh, spiritual poverty often go hand in hand. Uh, another brief word study. Uh, in order to understand the meaning of poor, especially as it relates to poor in spirit, it is helpful to see how this particular Greek word is used in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, this particular word for poor is used to qualify six different Hebrew terms. And you can, you can rest easy. We're not going to look at any of them this morning. Uh, but it qualifies or is used for six different concepts. Uh, but the most, the most basic meaning of poor, this word poor in the Old Testament, it gets at someone's dependency on another person. It's, it's deeper than just the material need. It's often used to describe the powerless who are vulnerable to exploitation. The poor are desperate for a defender. The poor have been humbled and have to rely on God for deliverance. So the socioeconomic and the religious dimensions of the poor here are generally inseparable. So what does Matthew mean when he says poor in spirit? Most scholars would immediately note that this word for poor is used in Isaiah chapter 61. Exactly. Uh, here we find a prophecy that Matthew sees as being literally fulfilled with Jesus and the coming kingdom. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because, he, uh, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus is bringing good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus' ministry stands in continuity with this understanding of poor. And those who were most attracted to his ministry were the social and religious outcasts. Right, the rejects of Jewish religious society, those always on the wrong side of history. And as with other terminology in the Old Testament and Matthew, there are similar expressions that help us unpack what poor in spirit really means. Expressions like crushed in spirit, or proud in spirit, or pure in heart, can help us make sense of how we interpret poor in spirit. Generally, this word heart or spirit refers to the seat of one's inner feelings or emotions, 
one's spiritual and rational functions, one's volition, or one's use of one's will. So in verse 3, the phrase poor in spirit focuses more on the noun than the adjective. This is as, as nitty-gritty as we're getting here. This, I know grammar is not always fun. Um, it, foc- it focuses more on the, the noun than the adjective. And it's, there it is. Poor is the adjective. Spirit is the noun. Here, here's the point. Matthew is not speaking about those who have a spirit of poverty, but more broadly to those who are experiencing a poverty of spirit. Matthew is not speaking about those who have adopted a spirit of poverty, whatever that might look like, but more broadly, he's addressing those who are experiencing a poverty of spirit. In other words, those who face a deficit of courage or hope or patience or diligence or peace or caring or willing. So Matthew takes uh, account Uh, He takes the reality of external or material poverty and transfers it to an internal poverty of spirit because they are connected. A a minister once told a story of trying to lead a home Bible study among the poor in northern Mexico. And he did his best every week to encourage participation, but was having very little success. Uh, It was an inductive Bible study, so he would say, what do you think? He would ask this, but would always be met with silence. No response. Just silence. And this continued over and over until he realized that no one ever asks the poor what they think. No one ever asks the poor what they think. We live in a world where real poverty is equated with failure on every level. Quite frankly, the poor are not considered as having any thoughts worth sharing. Imagine living in that kind of world and you begin to understand what it might mean to be poor in spirit and how it's intimately connected to material poverty. And yet, here is Jesus pronouncing blessings on these. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And how radically different is that message from our own list of personal beatitudes or our cultural list of beatitudes? What do we hear today? Uh, Blessed are the rich, the resourceful, the resilient. Blessed are the bold, the beautiful. Blessed are the skilled, right? Blessed are the self-made and the successful. Blessed are those who don't back down from a challenge. Blessed are those who have a fulfilling career or those who have married well. Blessed are the diligent, the persistent, the resourceful. Blessed are the free, the fighters, and the brave. That's a deliberate allusion to, you know, land of the free, home of the brave. But here's the irony of our materially rich Western cultural landscape. It's that it often conceals a vast 
expansive internal desert of an impoverished human soul. The chances, however, are quite good that some of us are facing a kind of poverty of spirit this morning. Though you're a follower of Christ, you may be facing your own deficit. You may be depleted in your spirit of those qualities that make a Christ follower. Instead of patience, there's frustration. Frustration over being weighed down with these perpetually besetting sins. Instead of joy, there's sorrow. In place of fellowship, there's loneliness and isolation. Instead of life, there is barrenness. And yet here is Jesus pronouncing his divine favor on those of us who meet that description this morning. Blessed are the flunk outs and the frustrated. Blessed are those who are afraid of the future. Blessed are the discouraged or the hopeless. Blessed are those who are struggling to raise kids with special needs. Blessed are the ostracized, the ignored, the emotionally needy, or the emotionally dead. Blessed are those who are being spurned by another family member. Blessed are those who can't find employment and those who are being worked to death. Blessed are those who endure the daily bodily betrayal of chronic illness. Blessed are the weary and the exhausted and those who struggle to care for their aging parents. Jesus is saying, you are favored this morning. That's not happiness. The final point is that where Christians have often gone so wrong, this is where if, if we're going to go astray, this is it. We are favored because the kingdom is given to us. Now, no doubt, if you're economically poor, you're more, more likely to trust God. That's, that's almost a straightforward formula. The, uh, the Dominican scholar Simon Tugwell once noted that the poor are in the best position to receive a gift of the kingdom because for the poor, everything is a gift. And we shouldn't deny this. And we should also acknowledge that those who know and acknowledge their spiritual poverty are blessed in part because they realize it. The self-sufficient see no need for the kingdom. And they're actually worse off. But for various reasons, we've had the tendency to read this passage as if poverty is the cause of our blessing. As if we're blessed because we become poor in spirit. The Beatitudes have come to refer to a kind of praiseworthy condition. Some have turned Jesus' words into an ethical demand to strive for material poverty and humility. Blessed are the humble, some interpret this verse. Now, of course, we ought to be humble, but the Beatitudes are not a list of telling us to be like that. 
And if we read them this way, we're either headed for a lifetime of guilt or we'll come to reject Christianity altogether, and rightly so. Dallas Willard tells a story of a woman who approached him after he had preached a sermon on the Beatitudes. She said that her son had dropped his Christian identification and left the church. He was a strong, intelligent, independent, career, military man who had been told that the Beatitudes were Christian characteristics to emulate, that we should be sad, poor, weak, and mild. He told his mother very simply, that's not me, and I could never be like that. That is a misreading of the Beatitudes. And if we get it wrong here, the whole sermon quickly degenerates into a list of rules for the heart that crush and destroy. It is like reading the Old Testament only on steroids, where the rules are not merely external, but they're internal. Quoting Willard again and his insightful comments, he says, under that interpretation, we have made Christ himself meaner than Moses. Some Christians read this passage this way. But the cause of our flavor, the cause of our favor or blessedness is in the text itself. And it's a tiny word, three-letter word, for, which means basically because. Uh, While Jesus is drawing on the beatitude tradition in Judaism in the Old Testament, he's also doing something new here. He breaks the pattern by adding this word because, a because clause to each individual item. He uses this in part because he's doing, uh, he's doing something unconventional. In fact, he's turning this kind of conventional Jewish wisdom on its head. This is certainly at least one of the reasons why the crowds were astonished and could say that his teaching was with authority. Because no scribe or Pharisee would dare add a because clause. Like only God could do something like that. So we can't underestimate the significance of that word for. We're not blessed because we're poor in spirit. We are blessed because the kingdom is given to us. It's right there in the text. And I think Robert uh, Gulick uh, best captures the significance of this uh, in his statements here. And it's, uh, it's behind me on the screen. Jesus does not pronounce as blessed those who obey his words or do the will of the Father, but those who stand as empty-handed, desperate, those hungering and thirsting for a right relationship with the Father and others. Those pronounced as blessed are people in considerable distress, severe pressure, and all but hopeless. The spiritually poor are blessed because God's kingdom is now available to them and to us. A couple of brief points about the kingdom of heaven before we close. Uh, most scholars w- will uh, point this out, and it's, it's helpful to always keep in mind, mind when we come across this word kingdom in the New Testament. Kingdom is both now and not yet. 
or already and not yet. We should also note the present tense of the verb in verse 3. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is available right now. In fact, the first and the last Beatitudes in verses 3 and 10 are framed with this present tense expression. Theirs is. Theirs is. All the Beatitudes in between are future tense. They speak of a future blessing. So when the blind receive their sight and the lame walk, the kingdom is already present, but the world still remains broken. The second point about the kingdom is that the kingdom and Christ are always intimately connected. The kingdom of heaven is now present as God's sovereign rule in Christ. Where Christ is, the kingdom is also. And Christ is flinging the gates of heaven wide open here. And they're still open. So I, I want to conclude with one theological point. It's hard to resist theology. Uh, I know uh, we have a different perspective on maybe how enjoyable that might be. But I think this is, uh, I think this is very significant here. Because it's easy for us to think of Jesus in these narratives as a prophet or a sage with a new message. And certainly that is true, but that is not enough. Historically, the church has affirmed that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Two natures united in one person who is Jesus of Nazareth. This is Christology 101. Furthermore, these two natures are not mixed or confused, which would leave us with a kind of semi-deity. Jesus' humanity is complete, but his divinity is also complete. Both and. And yes, there is no language that can capture the depths of what is going on here, much less make complete sense of it. But this means that the clearest picture we have of God is Jesus Christ. But Jesus' humanity also means that he has fully and completely entered into our human condition, including all of our brokenness and all of our spiritual poverty. How scandalous for God to have such intimate connection with human beings. Here's why this matters, right? No one knows more what it is to be poor in spirit than Jesus. No one. Jesus took his place on earth and our place on the cross, becoming the lowliest of the low, the neediest of the needy, and all of this without ceasing to be God. This is why Christmas and the Incarnation is so important. If we get Christmas wrong, Easter doesn't stand a chance. The Jesus who proclaims his favor to the poor in spirit reminds us that God has not forgotten us because this Jesus has suffered a poverty of spirit that is deeper and more destitute than we could ever possibly imagine. Whatever 
hole you are in this morning, Jesus is supporting you from a place deeper. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Favored are those who are poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That's Matthew 5.3. And for those Christ followers who are discouraged this morning, if that's you, may you be reminded that God has not forgotten. God has not forgotten about you, and the kingdom is already yours. You belong to Christ. In the opening of this narrative, going back to verse 1 quickly, Jesus sees the crowd He sits on a hillside, and he speaks to his disciples. He sees, he sits, and he speaks. See, Christ still does that today. He sees you. He's waiting for a moment with you, sitting in your living room or your study or your kitchen or your car. But he's never in a hurry. He's got the time to talk. And he's ready to listen and to speak words of comfort. Maybe you're not discouraged this morning, but you know someone who is. Then this week is an opportunity for you to be a blessing and to speak life into those who are perishing. And then there's the secondary audience, which is the crowd. Maybe you're still one of the onlookers, perhaps a bit suspicious, or cynical about the claims of Christ or Christianity. Maybe you've been burned by a follower of Jesus. There is still for you, however, an invitation, an open invitation to join this ragtag bunch of misfit disciples. For on the cross, he has paved the way. The Beatitudes continue to announce that the gates of the kingdom are still wide open. But to make that kind of decision will require an acknowledgement that you too are poor in spirit. To be sure, being a disciple does not mean staying this way. There are ethical demands in the Sermon on the Mount. And frankly, there is no more challenging or difficult ethical demand than the demand that is placed on us by Christ in loving our neighbors as ourselves, let alone loving God. But those kinds of demands only come after the initial gift of grace of the kingdom. God's gift of grace is Christ himself. Otherwise, we are left with a list of rules and a lifetime of guilt. I don't know about you, but I've had quite enough of guilt. The animating principle of all Christian ethics is God's grace, and the Beatitudes testify to this good news. I finish with a quote from Dallas Willard again just because I I love it, and I think it captures what's going on in this sermon. Blessed are the physically repulsive. Blessed are those who smell bad, the twisted, misshapen, deformed, the too big, the too little, the too loud, the bald, the fat, the old, for they are all riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that the gates of the kingdom are still open. Help us to come, come to you as we are. We acknowledge our brokenness, our need for you. We acknowledge that before you we all stand as empty-handed beggars. We thank you that the kingdom indeed is ours. Amen.